Hi friends, welcome to Mountain. I guess we're one step closer to whatever the new normal is going to look like for our lives and our jobs, our, our school, and even our church. Uh, today, we are wrapping up a series called Six Feet Apart, which has been all about some of those big, tough questions of life and faith, because everything going on right now is just causing us to feel like a lot of things are kind of out of reach, right? So we've talked about how COVID-19 has exposed our flimsy and false gods and give us an opportunity to cling to the only true God left standing. And then we talked about um, whether it's even reasonable to believe in God with everything going on. And what to do when you're thrown into the unknown and how God's people should think and act in the face of all the racial unrest around us. But today, today's a doozy. So I'm going to ask you to do whatever you can to kind of eliminate some of the distractions around you and try to give your attention to this over the next few minutes because I think it's going to be that important. Mike and Aaron uh, put their life savings into starting up their new business uh, and it was a lot harder than they thought, but they were just starting to get some traction and had made their first quarter of profit when COVID closed them down. And now they've lost everything. So they're selling their house. Their kids are going to have to change schools. It's an emotionally difficult time trying to figure out how to start over. Talk about a bad break. Last week, my friend Jamie was on the golf course said he was feeling pretty bad on about the 15th hole, so he wanted to call it a day. And then back at the clubhouse, his brother-in-law went to put the clubs in the car, and when he came back, people were huddled over Jamie doing compressions. And he never came to. Dead at 52. His wife and four kids, ages 6 to 12, are in utter shock, left somehow to pick up the pieces. Marcy is an old family friend, home from grad school because her school was online and all of the strangeness of the circumstances right now have kind of upset her rhythms and it's kind of given her a chance to think and pray and process her life a little more. And through that, she finally found the courage to give voice to a dark and terrifying secret that she'd been carrying for about 13 years. Marcy's uncle had sexually abused her repeatedly over a period of about three years. And then since then, virtually every aspect of her life has been dominated by that experience and the suffering as a result. Her self-image, her, her faith, her ability to give and receive love and relationship to trust people, to feel anything but numbness. She's kind and sweet on the outside, but inside she's seething with rage and guilt and wonders some days if her uncle was right, that it was just her fault. I, I know I don't need to go on, and you don't want me to. You don't need me to, because we don't need any other examples. I, I, I could, though. So could you. I could tell you about Ron, our friend here at Mountain, who died from COVID last month. Or Ryan, also in our community here, whose young wife walked out on him, gutting his emotions and leaving him confused and depleted. Or Donnie, nicest guy in the world, a lot of you know him, walked into my office years ago in his early 50s and said, I have to use post-it notes. He explained that he keeps forgetting things. And it was not long after that he was diagnosed with Alzheimer's and we said that long goodbye to Donnie. 
as his former self kind of slowly slipped away. Or we could talk about the cruel things people do to other people and all the injustice in hearts towards someone because they have a different skin color or the injustice in our hearts towards someone because they have a blue shirt with a badge on it. It's all so messed up. Tiny cancer cells in this world, they they spread and they grow, ravaging the body. Tiny sparks catch fire and spread and grow, ruining the earth. Tiny viruses spread and grow, destroying so much in its path. Suffering is everywhere, isn't it? Life's hard. And we all participate kind of whether we want to or not in this seemingly endless chorus of cries of grief and sorrow. And meanwhile, where's God? Where is God? That's the cry of any honest person. God, where are you? What are you up to? How am I supposed to make sense of everything that's going on in the world, in my life? So maybe the question isn't the one we asked a couple weeks ago, which is, is there even a God? Does it make sense to believe in God? Maybe the real question is, what kind of a God is he? I mean, is God good? Is he fair? Is he worth believing in or trusting with so much evil and suffering rampant in our world? And, and this isn't just some kind of academic, you know, question like an abstract puzzle, like some Sudoku thing you work on in the hammock. This is our life. This is our kids. This is our future. And it deserves a, a real answer. I mean, is God good? Is he, is he loving? When you look around, you sometimes have to ask, well, why doesn't God step in or do something about it? Or does he just get his jollies inflicting pain on people, sort of like this cartoon, getting ready to hit the old, you know, smite button. (laughs) Is that how this works? I mean, is God capricious and playing with our fates like, like some kid with a magnifying glass over a bunch of ants? If you've ever wondered things like that, you're not alone. Why there is evil and suffering in the world is one of the most persistently nagging questions and and a super difficult problem for every philosophy and worldview and religion in the world, whether you're Buddhist or Muslim or, or Mormon or Scientologist or Hindu or a secular atheist. Everyone has to come up with an answer to this question about why the world is so screwed up. And if you're a Christian, you better think this through because we worship a God who claims to be all-powerful and able to do anything he wants. But we also worship a God who's thoroughly good, not mean or vindictive. And yet, bad things keep happening. There's suffering in the world. We can't debate that. I mean, some try to deny it and downplay it, and that's their escape hatch here. But if we're honest about the suffering and we say God is good and he's powerful and and then he shouldn't let those bad things happen, but it's clear that bad things keep happening, then either some say God isn't really good after all or Maybe he is good, but he's just not that powerful and can't do anything about it. Elie Weissel, who suffered through and survived the Holocaust in Nazi Germany, said, if God isn't capable of stopping evil, if that's who God is, why doesn't he just resign and let someone more competent take his place? For a lot of us, the issue isn't whether there is a God, it's whether God's good and can be trusted. So this is a massive problem. We're not going to solve it all today. 
But typically there's kind of two approaches that people take here. One is kind of a philosophical angle and the other is more of a personal or pastoral angle. And the philosophical is the one that looks at this massive problem intellectually of how good and and how powerful God can square up with the existence of suffering. And it's a very important conversation. But the personal, that's where we live. When your kid's been diagnosed with leukemia, you don't care so much in that moment about philosophical arguments. You just, you're just trying to find how to, how to breathe and make sense of life and get through the next day. And the last thing someone needs when they're hurting is for someone to come along and try to argue with them or explain why they're wrong for hurting or feeling the way they do. And that's not the way the Bible teaches us to get through our suffering. Or how about this one for another bad answer? Have you heard this one? Someone has this horrible thing happen to them. Maybe a loved one dies or they lose their job. They get a bad diagnosis. And some well-meaning Christian comes along and says, well, you know, it's just all part of God's plan. Everything happens for a reason. What? A, a, A kid gets cancer and you're telling me that's part of God's plan? And I'm here to tell you, when a kid gets cancer, it's not part of God's plan at all. When disaster strikes and sin manifests itself in someone's life, whether corporately or individually, that's not God's plan. In fact, it's the opposite of God's plan. What people usually mean is that somehow God is still in control and God is still good and God is still there and that God is not going to be defeated. And that's all true. But people sometimes get confused between saying God permitted something to happen that he can then intervene and help fix or bring good out of, and God causing that thing to happen. That's called determinism. It says that as if because God knows everything, that therefore he's controlling everything. But here's what the Bible actually says. That even in the midst of the worst thing you go through, the worst sin, the worst suffering, the worst wickedness and evil, that God is committed to the ultimate good of his children and his creation, and that he has power to take even the worst situation, the one you're going through right now maybe, and to pull something good out of it, to redeem it, and to even use our pain for something good on our behalf. This is what Paul is getting at when he says in Romans 8, we know, we know, we can take this to the bank, that God causes everything, everything, to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. In whatever happens, in all things, God can still be at work, even in bad things. And we've seen this a million times, right? You know, a couple goes through this heartbreak, hearing their child has Down syndrome. And it feels like this horrendous loss, and they're swallowed in grief. But then you talk to them five years later, and they're like, oh, my. This is the most precious gift God could ever have given our family. He's taught us so much through this, and we're so thankful because God is at work in all things. Something that felt bad can be redeemed. Or a friend who did jail time. He had too many DUIs and it finally caught up with him. And some people just hate it. And they finally get out and life goes on the same destructive path. But for him, that became a way he turned to the Lord. And in jail, he got real and got right and made space for changes in his life. 
And his wife said, you're not coming back if you don't get this fixed. And he called out to God who heard his cries and he's clean and sober today with a straightened out life. And he will tell you, I would not want anyone to ever go through what I did. That pain was horrendous. But I'll tell you this, he says, God used it all to bring me back to him, to save my marriage, preserve my life. And I'm so thankful because God is at work in all things. But listen now, pay attention. That doesn't mean God caused that man to go out and go to the bar, tip too many brewskis and get behind the wheel. He did that on his own. God doesn't cause the evil. And if he had run someone over while he was intoxicated and said, my God, how did you let this happen? I think we all know the answer to that. But even in the worst that life can bring, God can show up and use it. Same in his life, same in your life. Now, there's plenty of other bad answers, but let's dig into our Bibles and see what we can say and should say in the face of suffering. When you're hurting, when, when, when your family member's hurting, and I know some of us right now, because of everything that's going on, or maybe because of something you haven't even told anyone, we're all hurting. What can we say? Well, the Bible really doesn't give us a bunch of snappy little answers to our suffering problem. It doesn't give us a response that's sort of an answer as much as an explanation. It tells us what God is doing about the problem. And most of all, it gives us resources to deal with it. More than anything else today, I hope that's what you get out of this, is some resources. Because answers can feel like they're six feet apart, and we're going to talk about some resources to help us through suffering. So instead of facts or truths to memorize, what the Bible does is it tells us a story. It says your story is part of this story. And this story, I'll be honest with you, is the only thing I've found that makes sense of all the ugly and hurt in the world while at the same time giving real help to get through the pain and hope in the midst of it. Let's tell the story. It's a deeply relational story, and it goes like this. God made us in order to love us. Every one of us is created for the purpose of being known and loved and drawn into a relationship with God. What this means is that God created us then with freedom to make choices with our life. We're fully conscious beings, self-determining beings. We're not robots. He could have made you like a, a cyborg or something like that with no choice but to sort of choose God, to always do the right thing. But then you wouldn't have been made in God's image and God could not have had a real relationship with us. God doesn't want us against our will, it turns out. Instead, he chose to love us and woo us, and that meant take the risk that we might spurn his love. Well, that's the only way to have a relationship be a real relationship. And if God made you love him, well, that wouldn't be a relationship at all. He, he wants your connection with him to be real. So he took the risk of setting you free. You get to choose this day whom you will serve. And you can say, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord or not. And so as the story goes, the first humans, Adam and Eve, were the ones who made a decision to go against God's love and relationship and leadership. 
And from then on, everything was sort of radically altered. The relationship was thrown off. The design for the world and how everything would operate got messed up. It's called the fall because we live in a fallen world. Things are not the way they were created and intended to be. Sin entered the world and death and dying came with it. Sickness, lying, jealousy, hatred, strife are all born into the human race. And and you have done the same thing, by the way, that Adam and Eve did. We all push against God, think we know better, rebel and don't trust him. Like sheep, the Bible says, we all go astray. And that's why all of our relationships in the world that we contribute to also is messed up. And it's not just humans that act immorally. It's that the world itself is kind of sick. Romans 8 says that all of creation has been groaning and we see it with tidal waves and birth defects and viruses. You, you go around and you can see it all over the news every day, this groaning planet with famines and sickness and corruption and disaster. It's like a huge cosmic scream that something's wrong and everything's out of whack. It's like an infection that spreads, and we don't need the World Health Organization to tell us that we're all carriers. Sometimes we're symptomatic, and other times we hide it. But the point is, God's not behind what's wrong with the world. We are. G.K. Chesterton once wrote to the editor in response to a request from the London Times for an essay on the topic, What's Wrong with the World? Here's what he wrote. Dear Sir, in response to your article, What's Wrong with the World?, I am yours truly, G.K. Chesterton. And he's right. The sin thing that we like to point to Adam and Eve for, it, it runs right through your heart and mine. God wants a relationship with us, and when you love someone, you're going to take that risk of suffering and loss. But without that willingness to be wounded at the deepest level, you can't have... It's uh, authentic relationship on the deepest level. So the world as God intended it is pretty messed up. And God said, I am going to fix it. I'm going to put it back together and put everything to rights. So he worked through a people in the Old Testament, and then he sent Jesus in the New. And when Jesus came, God's promised kingdom arrived. It was here. The kingdom had come. He longed for, for, for this healing and hope to come, and, and it finally came. The power and joy and love, it flowed through Jesus. It was present on earth. It was unleashed all over the place. The blind could see. The captives were going free. The kingdom is here now. But Jesus went on to say and show that it, the kingdom is not yet fully realized. It, it will come in its completion in the future. The kingdom is here now, but not yet in full when Jesus returns. J Jesus ha has come and, and he has bound the strong man, Satan, the one who rules over this earth in certain ways, and he's defeated death and hell in the process. And, and we get to live in the kingdom now, under Jesus' reign now. But the fullness of that reign and all the blessings and the amazing peace and love that will go with it will only be experienced when the kingdom is completely come, when Jesus returns, and that's still in the future. So, you see, we're free from Satan now. He has no claim on us. We're children of God, saved by faith, through by grace now. But in the meantime, we live in this now but not yet time. And though Satan is defeated, he continues 
to exert his influence over the earth. Death and evil is defeated, but not yet completely eradicated. Maybe I can illustrate it like this. It reminds me of maybe like an old Western movie, okay? There's a tranquil town where everyone's happy until the bad guy shows up, and he begins to wreak havoc in the little town. He rides into town. He's terrorizing everybody, and everybody runs for cover because he's back. He's stealing stuff from the general store. He ransacks the place, shoots holes wherever he wants, bullying everybody in the saloon. Everybody's terrified. It's just wrong. It's evil. And then the music changes, and the good guy comes riding into town, and people are peering out from behind their curtains at him, and he strides up to the bad guy, and he says, okay, that's enough. But the bad guy turns on him, and they scuffle and roll around in that classic barroom fight scene until finally one of them says, there's not room in this town for both of us, and they move out into the street outside the sheriff's office, and they take their paces, and they stare each other down with their fingers by their sides, and quick as lightning, they draw their weapons, and at the same instant, they pull the trigger. To everyone's horror, the good guy falls to the ground. He's been shot in the heart. He's dead. But the bad guy is hit too, but he's got life left in him for the moment. He begins to stagger and curse. He's angry. He's flailing and he's firing shots with both pistols everywhere he can. This goes on for so long. His gun's blazing. He hits the sheriff in the leg, the saloon keeper. He kills a bystander. He's shooting wildly. The blacksmith, even a a little girl in the window, he takes a shot at her, terrorizing the townspeople in a final fury of rage. And then finally, he collapses in a heap and the townspeople sigh with relief. And at that moment, the good guy lifts his head. He's not dead. It was only down for the count, but not out. And he strides over to where the bad guy lies on the ground and watches as his eyes fall closed for the last time. And everyone cheers because they got their town back, liberated by the good guy. I don't know if you like Westerns. (laughs) But that's our story. And that's what the Bible says Jesus has done to defeat evil and suffering once and for all. Suffering comes as an intruder to dish out pain and evil and sadness. But Jesus is the ultimate good guy who came not just for the evil uh, that the bad guy was doing, but for all of it and to restore order and goodness to the way it's meant to be. And he went out on the street called Calvary to face down our enemy because that's the only place it could be done. And he took a bullet for us all, for you, when he went to the cross. And it didn't just knock him down, it killed him dead. And by the power of God, he defeated our most fatal bullet, death itself. And his resurrection is the fatal shot and deciding blow to our enemy Satan and all of his minions. The power of evil was neutralized at the cross. And the ultimate outcome already decided. It's secured. God wins. Satan is vanquished. Evil and suffering and all of that, that is such a huge part of our story, will not have the last word in this story. But make no mistake, even though Satan is fatally wounded and his days are numbered, he's still staggering around firing bullets, wreaking havoc wherever he can in your life and mine. And he he knows he's done. But it doesn't mean he's got fake bullets. They can do real damage. 
and we've all been hit by the spray of bullets from evil and suffering in this in-between time, haven't we? Every case of the coronavirus is a stray bullet from the gun of a dying devil. It's evidence that creation itself is groaning and waiting. Every divorce, every case of depression, death itself, it's the devil inflicting as much pain as he can on his way out. So what are we supposed to do in the meantime with all the suffering and pain? First of all, can we just say there's so much mystery around this problem of suffering and evil, and we've got to be very humble and cautious about pretending to know all the answers. But let's talk about some of those things that we absolutely do know. First of all, cling to this. God is here. I mean, that's the truth of the Christian faith, is that God came among us and God is still here. The Bible says he's an ever-present help in the time of trouble. Hebrews says, I will never leave or forsake you, which means you're never alone. When you're hurting, when you're going through something really horrible in your life, Feeling alone is like the worst part. So I love Psalm 23, that familiar passage. God says that we're all like sheep that need a shepherd. And he helps us and he's with us in good times when we lie down in green pastures and go beside quiet waters. But also, it says when you walk through life's ugliest times, scariest moments, maybe some of you are going through a time like that right now, like a valley of the shadow of death. Notice it doesn't say, because you're my shepherd, I'm so glad because that means I'll never have to go through that valley. It says, no, even when I do, even though I go through the valley of the shadow of the death, I, I will not be afraid because you're with me. If you're going through an emotional valley, you're just sick of everything going on, maybe a spiritual valley, a physical valley, despair or discouragement, there's been some kind, this is just such a long haul. Maybe you lost your business. Maybe, maybe family stuff is so bad right now. Maybe finances or something with your health. It's just gone horribly. If you're in the valley, this verse reminds us you don't have to be afraid because you can say, God, you're with me. God is here. Another resource we have is the truth that God hurts. God is not some distant, aloof statue God who's cold and detached from the pain and sweat and toil of life. No, no, no. Remember, he entered this world. He came among us and he tasted temptation and disappointment. He was despised and rejected, suffered in every way, the Bible says, like we do. So I know you may be going through something hard right now. And can you imagine Jesus saying, I know, I know, I've been there, man. He's a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. God hurts. He's, he's, he's entered into it, and by the cross, he's taken upon our, himself the pain of the whole world and all of our suffering. So take it to the Lord in prayer, whatever you're going through. We sing that song, You Understand Me, God, and he does. He gets you. He's been there. When, when his dear friend Lazarus died, Jesus showed up and saw all the weeping and the crying, and he hated it so much. He, as he thought, just is not the way it's supposed to be. You know what Jesus did? He wept. And when he sees your pain and your tears and your loss, your suffering, the evil that's affected you in your life, whether by your own doing or someone else's, you can be assured of this. Jesus weeps. God hurts with us. 
People say, where was God when that happened? I'll tell you. He was with us, weeping. Mary Mary was weeping, too, over her dead brother. And Jesus says, where have you laid him? And she said to him these words, come and see, Lord. Some of you have a pain right now that you need to invite Jesus into. You need to say, Jesus, come and see. Do you need to pray that right now to the Jesus who weeps with us in life's most difficult moments? Lord, come and see my pain, my hurt, my grief. Come and see my broken heart, my broken emotions, my broken hopes, my broken home. Come and see, Jesus. Invite him to see your discouragement and your doubts. Lord, come and see the consequences of my past wrong choices or my failures and sin. Come and see what I'm going through right now. Come and see my weaknesses. I, I, come and see my fear, my emptiness. Come and see my shame and my sadness, my loneliness. Don't put a shield around your heart to prevent him from seeing and knowing. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And God helps. 2 Corinthians 1 says, All praise to God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is our merciful Father and the source of all comfort. He comforts us in all of our troubles so that we can comfort others. It's a beautiful promise about the nature of God who doesn't sit idly by and watch us in our struggle. He meets us in our pain and gives us the comfort and consolation we need. The word comfort there is actually paraklesis. It means comfort or encouragement. Para means to come alongside. It's the God who comes right beside us and is our helper. I'll never forget getting a call one day many years ago for a family just down the mountain road. Their 13-year-old son had committed suicide in the home. I was kind of new here at Mountain I didn't know the mother very well, but when I got there, she and the other kids were just wailing and stunned and confused. And I thought, how, what am I doing here? How can I help? And I just thought to myself, I remember thinking, I just need to try to be like God. I need to try to just be God's presence any way I could. And I just said, I'm so sorry, because I knew that's what God would want them to know. I tried to be a strong but quiet, non-anxious presence And then I just said, can I pray with you? And they said, please. And I don't remember anything I prayed. But I remember the tears flowing all around as if they had kind of fallen into the Lord's arms in that prayer. And when we said amen, she said, God's here, isn't he? And I said, yes. And over the coming days, we talked about how she would never be alone and how even though it would be so hard and lonely and difficult, that God would always be there to help her and to strengthen and comfort her. God helps. The Bible doesn't give us answers. It gives us resources. What else can we say? Maybe the most important thing is that God is hope. You know, Viktor Frankl survived Nazi Germany and was asked about the difference between people who made it through and people who didn't. And he said one of the huge, most palpable differences was this, hope. 
And God has given us a picture of the future so that we can see it today and have hope. He's shown us a picture when all evil and suffering is erased and God's kingdom has come to earth and all is right with the world. A missionary was once asked what Jesus will say when he returns to earth at the end of all things. It does say in the Bible in 1 Thessalonians 4 that the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout. And the person wanted to know, what's Jesus going to shout? I don't know. You know, hey, oh, I'm back. I, I don't know. But the missionary thought for a moment and said, enough. Jesus will shout, enough. Enough suffering. Enough starvation. Enough terror. Enough racism. Enough viruses. Enough violence in the streets. Enough cheating and selfishness and corruption and cancer and hopelessness and people treated with indignity and loneliness because it's not part of the plan enough. And that's how the story ends. And this whole life we're living now with all the pain in it is just the prologue to the best and most beautiful part of the story. When Jesus comes back, when the kingdom is fully come, and on that day, the Bible says, God will wipe every tear from our eyes and there will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain because it's all gone and God is making everything new. We know how the story ends. And that future hope infuses the present moment in such a way as to give us strength to endure anything. Because we know God is good and God is with us and God is stronger and we're not alone as we go to an incredible glory. And it's such a powerful future vision that when we look at all of our present sufferings in light of that future glory, man, Romans 8 says, it makes the present sufferings like just shrunk down to size. It's hope that breathes comfort into our darkest circumstances, that tells us that God has the last word, that even if you can't see him or feel him, he's working, working, and he will make a way. That kind of hope of the future, and it brings comfort, encouragement, and refreshment of our spirit today. So we work with all our might to bring the kingdom come right here, right now, on earth, as it is in heaven. But while we do, we keep an eye on the sky as well because we know this is not all there is. And no matter how bad it gets, God's love and power is stronger. Teresa of Avila said that the first kiss and hug from Jesus when we get to see him is going to be more than enough to compensate for a thousand really, really bad lives. And so we can say, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. Neither death nor life, angels or demons, neither our fears today nor our worries about tomorrow, not even the powers of hell can separate us from God's love.